This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Mobile hunters, are you still looking for a lightweight and comfortable option to fit your hunting style? Well, look no further than Tethered's Phantom Saddle. It's extremely comfortable and extremely adjustable to fit exactly the way you want to hunt. I think my favorite features of this new saddle are the comfort channels, which is where the bridge kind of locks into the saddle. There's no more kind of fidgeting, moving your saddle around to try to find the right spot and reduce hip pinch. This just kind of locks in exactly where it's supposed to be. It's an extremely comfortable sit. The other uh, option or aspect of the saddle that I really like is the utila bridge. Oftentimes you're in a tree putting your tether up and you have a branch in the way and so you're not at the right height. And it changes the angle of your bridge, which changes your comfort. Well, there's a utila bridge now that the Phantom has to where you can adjust that. So no more does it matter where exactly your tether height is as you can adjust that length of your bridge uh, with the utila bridge itself. I think the other thing that helped me make the adjustment two years ago-ish when I transitioned to saddle hunting was the Predator platform. If you're coming from a tree stand, a little bit of familiarity with having a platform uh, went a long way in just making me comfortable with my overall setups. So the Predator platform might be something you want to look into. If you're interested and you're still just kind of on the fence, you can go to tetherednation.com and check out their teach and train sessions that they're doing in, in a bunch of towns uh, that are most likely near you. Um, they're doing these sessions to help you come out and get familiar with their gear, talk to some saddle hunters, and, and just kind of a, a, exactly what it is. They're there to kind of teach you how to saddle hunt and how to get into it the, the, the best, the most comfortable way, and, and the safest way possible. So if you check out that tab on their website at tetherednation.com, teach and train, it'll show a bunch of locations. I'll be at the Total Archery Challenge in Seven Springs, August through uh, 20th through the 23rd, and I hope to see you guys there. The first thing I do in the morning before a hunt, before a scout, or just before getting ready for work is have my morning coffee, and I'm sure most of you out there listening are the same. Make sure you're filling your mug with Skull Brew Coffee, as it is the only coffee company that is both 2% for conservation certified and donates 10% of its profits to conservation organizations to help secure the future of our wild places. So head to SkullBrewCoffee.com and choose between three killer roasts of coffee and know that you are supporting conservation with every sip.
Welcome to the Truth From The Stand Deer Hunting Podcast brought to you by Skull Brew Coffee Company. I'm your host, Clint Campbell, and you're listening to episode number 183. Today I'm joined by Ted Bright, and we're talking mobile hunting in the Ozarks, so stay tuned. Happy Wednesday to you. Hope you're doing well. Hope you are feeling fine. We are rolling right along here in, in June, coming up on a, another holiday weekend, which I'm getting pretty uh, pretty stoked about. Actually, I should wish you guys all out there listening a happy Father's Day. I uh, didn't do that in the last podcast. I hope you guys had a hope all the gentlemen out there who are dads uh, had a good Father's Day, got a little time to do some R&R, just do what do what it is you uh, you like to do on your on your free day, if you will. And uh if you're not a dad, I uh, hope you had got an opportunity to spend some time with uh, with your pops and with some family. Uh, it was a nice weekend. It was supposed to be kind of crappy and rainy around here, but it ended up being a pretty decent weekend. So I actually was able to spend most of the weekend uh, weekend outside, which was uh, which was killer. The other cool thing is, is I think I'm trying to remember exactly what what the date is on this. So today's the tw- actually I think as I'm recording this on Monday morning before work, uh, this is our anniversary date we've been doing this show we're headed into year number five so i just want to give a big thank you to all you out there that listen to this show that have been riding along for whether you just started listening or whether you've been listening since way back in the day on episode one it's kind of crazy to think that we've been rolling uh this thing for uh for five years i'd be lying if i said i thought it would make it five years um to be honest it didn't really have any intention to have the podcast run five years necessarily. It didn't really have a time frame at all. It was just one of those things where I started it and I was just going to see how long it rolled out. And whenever I got tired of doing it, I was going to stop doing it. It's kind of like Forrest when he got got tired of running. He just decided he was going to go home then. And that was kind of what my plan was, but I'm still digging it, still having a good time talking deer hunting with everyone. Um, and so we're going to continue to power on. I always look forward to putting out these episodes, look forward to meeting you guys whenever I get a chance to, you know, hopefully some of the health things and health things kind of uh, get relaxed here in the not so distant future to where we can, you know, get together at, at events and trade shows and, 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 and stuff like that, the teach and train session that uh, Tether will be doing at the total archery challenge, you know, and, and, and things like that to where I can, you know, see some of you folks and so forth. So, but we're not going to belabor uh, this, uh, this up front today because I do have to get cracking and get to the, get to the J O B uh, since I didn't get to do this on Sunday as usual, just a quick update of things that are going on. Uh, you know, I did change some, uh, put out the last camera this past weekend in the swamp. So all the cameras for me for inventory or for summer are out now with the exception of the cameras on my dad's property. I haven't put any out there yet. I may not even put cameras out on that property this year. Cause I don't think I'm going to get a chance to go back to hunt it. Um, and there in truth be told, like he's actually building a cabin there. And so there's, there's people there that I don't know. And so, you know, that's obviously like a really easy way for something to walk off the property is to have a bunch of people there that you don't know. And that, you know, my dad or I don't live there to kind of keep tabs on the, on the place and stuff like that. So I'm probably not going to put anything up, uh, there. If I do, it'll be really late in the summer whenever they're getting close to wrapping up the, wrapping up the cabin build. Um, and, uh, and, and, and then I may put them out just to kind of inventory things for the fall, and, uh, for, for possibly next year when I, maybe I, maybe I have some time to hunt it, who knows. Um, but that's kind of the plan for, uh, the, the, the plan for that. The other big thing that I did, actually my father's day thing that I did was really, I spent the entire day working on the trailer. So I got, you know, most of the walls done at this point, I got the heater put in, 
which was like the thing I really wanted to do because I was I was looking at the calendar and, and realizing that, you know, we're going on a family vacation over the 4th and stuff like that. And was starting to think about, you know, when I get back from the 4th, I'm going to have to move cameras around on some of these places where I've never hunted before. I've never hung cameras because I don't really know where the cameras need to be. So I need to check them so I'm not letting them soak for months and months on end and not getting envy, any inventory at all. And so that'll be that weekend when we come back probably from that. And then by that point, you know, now you're sitting at, you know, whatever it is, like mid-July, getting towards the third week of July. And I was like, and then I really got at that point, like a month and a half, and then my hunting season starts, and then I don't want to be spending weekends working on this thing, so I was starting to get a little bit nervous and knew that I really needed to start to make hay, um, you know, while, while the sun was shining, my goal was to try to get this thing done by the end of July, and so I made a big step toward that, where I got the heater in, got that kind of installed, got the most of the paneling, like, all kind of installed, I've got, like, a handful of pieces of insulation I got to put up on the back wall, because I'm going to reinforce some of the e-tracks that I used for, um, uh, for, for one of the beds uh, that, that I'm the, 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 uh, the hammock bed that I have for, for Chad, I'm going to reinforce that and do some bolt through from the outside. So I wanted to do that first before I finish that wall. And so I have that to do. And then the solar generator should come in this week and then, you know, put the solar panels on and stuff like that. And then at that point, it's, it's some odds and ends it's dropping, you know, propane lines and stuff like that in, in through the walls and stuff like that. And so, which, you know, isn't necessarily, it's not time consuming. The time consuming stuff is really all the cutting that you have to do when you're cutting, you know, wood and framing and, and stuff like that. And so most of that stuff is done now. So now I feel a lot better about where I'm sitting, uh, with the completion, completion percentage relative to where we are in the, uh, in the summer. So feeling good about that, but Going to go ahead and cut this up front short uh, and just jump to the podcast. I have my buddy Ted Bright on. Uh, Some of you may know Ted. He was on the, if I'm not mistaken, I believe he was on the Public Land Challenge last year. Uh, He's one of the, he's one of my friends from uh, from Tethered. Um, He's out of Missouri. And as a lot of you guys that listen to this show know that I'm likely headed to Missouri this year. And so I thought, one, he's a saddle hunter and and a mobile hunter. And and he's, you know, he hunts, you know, beast style. And so I always kind of dig having guys like that on. And then the second part of it is, is, you know, I've never hunted Missouri before and I'm really kind of, it's, it's foreign to me. And so I thought it'd be cool to have someone on where I can kind of talk to them a little bit about some of the terrain and, uh, and, and, and things that they look for and things that they find and where they typically find deer and stuff like that to try to help me you know, mentally prepare to go into that hunt, kind of walk, because I'm going to be, as I said in the past, I'm going to be walking into that place blind, no time to go scout it. Um, so I need, to, I need to try to do as much intel gathering as I can, whether it's e-scouting or whether it's talking to people that live there, or like the local DNR or whatever the case is, to try to start to get a sense of what I'm going to walk into. So with that, we'll go ahead and jump to the show. And as always, thank you all for listening. All right, folks, welcome back to another episode of the Truth from the Stand Deer Hunting Podcast. And today I've got a, uh, I'm going to refer to him as my mobile brother because he is a, he is a gentleman of the saddle as, as I am. I, I run into him through our mutual buddies at, at Tethered, uh, Mr. Greg Godfrey and those folks. And he's been a guy I've been kind of following online, watched, uh, caught a glimpse of a few of his hunts, know that he's a saddle freak. And I thought that I might as well have this guy on talk a little deer hunt. He's also from the state of Missouri which I'd be lying if I said I wasn't trying to get a little bit of inside intel from him since I'm going to be headed there this year, but I'm talking about none other than Mr. Ted Bright. What's going on, man? Hey, Clint. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. You bet, man. I know you just got back from a fishing trip, got to got to do a little ripping some lips out on the water. Sounded like that was a pretty good session. Yes, it was. Yes, it was. Uh, we went down to Table Rock Lake and 
caught a few nice keepers, a couple 18 inch bass. Uh, my buddy caught an 18 inch smallmouth, and I caught an 18 inch largemouth. There was a the big fish of the day yesterday, and it was just a one day fishing trip. So right, uh, but it was a good time. Nice man, yeah. I uh, I I like to do a little fishing. I like to say my fishing is kind of like my golf game, where I, I do a lot better job drinking and smoking cigars than I do fishing. It's probably <laughs> it's probably my strong suit. Uh, with those two sports, but, uh, nonetheless, I do like to get out. I just got recently got a kayak for kayak access and my daughter is not really into hunting, but she is into fishing. So that's my kind of like connection with her for the outdoors. I figured get a kayak. She and I can go out on the lake, you know, do a little bit of fishing, have some fun. And then maybe if she likes that enough, I can convince her that we could use the kayak to do some hunting and she might get into it. What do you think? Uh, I hate it. Whatever it takes, you know, uh, What, if it's fun for them, then it, then it's a, a win for all. And, you know, we can do things like that to make it fun for them. Uh, you know, I, my oldest daughter, she, she enjoyed it and hunting. And she would go, you know, a couple times a year or whatever, but she never really got into it. My son, who is now 17, he's very passionate about it and loves it. He's killed a pile of deer. Right. And my, uh, my six-year-old daughter, now she's all into it. Like, she shoots a crossbow you know, once a week or so. And, you know, we went turkey hunting a couple of times this year. She's eating it up kind of like her brother. Right. Nice. Yeah. I know you laid down some birds, man. It's like between you and your son, it's like you guys had birds falling all over the place, multiple States, if I'm not mistaken. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I killed two in Tennessee and then, uh, and he wasn't able to hunt in Tennessee, but he went and, and filmed for me. Mm-hmm. And then I, I killed my two in Missouri, which were allowed to, uh, two every year. Right. And, and, and he killed one. So we killed five between the two of us, but I also called in a bird for a buddy of mine. So it's kind of a part, you know, a part of six kills. Nice, man. That's uh, I might need to take some notes from, from you, man. It's like turkey hunting is one of those things. I always, people listen to this, always hear me say, it's like, I turkey hunt the deer scout and I basically just take the gun a walk for the most part. Cause I am, I probably don't have enough patience for it. It's like, if I can't get them off the roost, I'm usually proud to, I usually cash it in pretty early and then I'm off, you know, deer scouting or whatever. So, um, you know, and calling is not my forte either when it comes to comes to turkey hunting. My buddy John, though, I don't know if you if you know Mr. John Mulligan though, but he uh he did this slam with a with a bow in a total of forty two days, which is pretty insane. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, I, I'm like you. You know, I I haven't I didn't grow up turkey hunting, and I've I've turkey hunted for like I don't know eight or ten years. Mm-hmm. And at first, it was always just that. You know, I would just always get preoccupied by scouting. Yeah. For deer, you know, and then, uh, I don't know, the last couple of years, it's really bit me. Now I can, I can pursue the birds and, you know, kind of with a much more tactical approach and still accomplish the scouting. You know what I mean? It's just a little bit easier now, but I, right. I've really come to enjoy turkey hunting. Yeah. I, I mean, I really enjoy being out that time of year just cause it's, it's so nice out. The weather's nice. You know, it's not hot yet it's not so cold where you got to really bundle up like it's just i mean this year was kind of weird that there were some really kind of cold days i remember the one the one day i was gonna go out and this is this will just kind of illustrate how i'm very much a fair weather turkey hunter um it, it was a saturday that i was you know i had the opportunity to go and i think the low that morning was like 28 degrees with like spit and snow and i woke up and i was like yeah there ain't no way i'm doing this today <laughs> i was like <laughs> You know, I was like, this feels like deer hunting weather. I was like, if I had, if I could put a bow in my hand and, and go get into a saddle and try to chase some whitetails, I was like, I'd be into it. I was like, but for turkeys, I was like, eh, man, it's got to be, I've got to be able to go in and like one layer if I'm going to do it. That's kind of my criteria for turkey hunting. But uh, 
You mentioned uh, just your background with hunting, man. So before we, you know, we're going to talk some whitetails here, but before we jump into that, if you wouldn't mind, just, you know, give folks a little bit of background information about yourself, you know, where you're from and how you got started hunting. Sure. Yeah. So I, I grew up in Pennsylvania and uh, I guess you'd say Eastern South Central in York County, Pennsylvania. Are you kidding? And no, no, that's Shrewsbury, right on Interstate 83. Yeah. Cause I'm from Bedford. I had no clue you were from Pennsylvania. That's crazy. You're from Bedford. Wow. I didn't even know that because we used to hunt Will's mountain yeah. uh, right outside of Hindman. Yeah. That's my, my parents, my, uh, my, my mom and my stepdad lived there. I used to hunt Will's mountain. I used to, I used to trout fish Will's Creek, little Will's. Really? Right outside of Hindman? Yeah. They live in Buffalo Mills uh, right there, right before you get into Hindman. Yep. Yep. I rem- I don't, you know, vividly recall the layout, but I remember passing, you know, seeing that road signs for that. Yeah. That's crazy. Interesting. My, like the, my family lives there like still that my dad grew up in Buffalo Mills and that's where that was his home place. And my entire family, both sides, like my stepdad's side, my mom's side, my dad's side and my stepmom's side, they're all from that general area. So it's like, that's like, <laughs> that, my, that's, that's like my old stomping grounds where it's like, I used, I grew up hunting those places and fishing those places and stuff like that. That's crazy. I, mean, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but I had, I just didn't know you were from PA. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. That is so fun. We'll have to have an offline conversation about that. Yeah, we will. That, that, that neck of the woods is, is so interesting. Yeah. You know, those, uh, those people tend to look at the game wardens as the, 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 the arch nemesis, the enemy. Oh yeah. And, yeah. It's, it's, it's definitely, you know, I'll make no bones about it. The area is thick with outlaws, you know what I mean? It's like, especially when it comes to, um, hunting and, and fishing and following regulations and stuff like that. Like, it's just, it's a very interesting, um, interesting place. They, they aren't, uh, they aren't keen on the, the game commission authority, I guess you could say, you know what I mean? would be one way to put it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I remember that pretty vividly as a kid. Yeah. Yeah. But anyway, sorry, I didn't mean to get us off the, off the tracks here, but your, your background, you grew up in, in, in Pennsylvania. Yes. Yeah. So I grew up in Pennsylvania. You know, we did some uh, of the Western Mountain Pennsylvania hunting as a kid. And I was just enamored with that. I thought that was the coolest thing ever. In fact, I killed my first deer when I was 15 years old in three feet of snow in Friendsville, Maryland. So oh, actually, nice. you know, like Western Maryland, that yeah. right at the very tip, you know, there's like 10 mile tip between Pennsylvania and West yeah. Virginia there, whatever yeah. it is. Uh, so anyway, yeah, grew up there. And then at the age of 16, I moved to Missouri. And, uh, you know, the, the deer numbers where I moved in the northern Ozarks were a lot less than uh, the agricultural land of uh, south central Pennsylvania. And I can remember thinking, oh, my gosh, you know, walking into the, the woods at this new place where we lived and like, there's no deer sign anywhere. Right. But in reality, it was just a, it's just different. You know, there's, mm-hmm. there are less deer, um, but the deer of the Ozarks are, you know, they're just not as habitual as deer in uh, agricultural land. So that was a bit of a challenge, but, you know, so I anyway moved there at 16 and, um, you know, learned deer hunting here in Missouri and, you know, all throughout I've always been a big archery hunter and, uh, you know, through my early adult phases, I, I, I always did both gun hunting and bow hunting, but, was always much more passionate about the archery aspect of it. And, um, so, you know, that, that there was one buck in particular that I killed and I think it was 2015 and that, that was like a turning point for me. And, mm-hmm. 
the only times that I've taken a rifle to the woods since then, or if I'm, you know, taking a kid with me or something like that. So that was kind of the turning point to where I'm just all all archery. And, you know, it's, it's my one passion, you know, you mentioned golf and, and, uh, and turkey hunting. Well, you know, fishing has become like that to me where, you know, I, I enjoy going fishing when the opportunity presents itself and I can get away, but I will make time to scout and archery hunt. And it's the one you know, singular passion that I have that I will absolutely make time for. Yeah, no, I hear you. I'm the, I'm the same exact way. It's like, if I can fit some other stuff in, you know, like I, I hadn't golfed in years and one of the guys I work with over like the holiday weekend, a few weeks ago, it was like, Hey, why don't we go out and, and, and play? He, you know, he's a member at a place. He's like, you know, I wanted to, he wanted to invite me. So I went and I played, I was, I was terrible, but I had a good time and I made time for it because, well, I didn't have anything else going on that weekend. And it just, it just, it was convenient. Right. Um, but I'm the same way with you where it's like, I, take time away from work. I, I miss like family gatherings, like, you know what I mean? Like to go scout hunt or whatever the, whatever the case is, you know, and no matter kind of what the weather is, but I'm curious, man, cause I was very similar to you and, you know, probably not all that, you know, mysterious as to why, I mean, you grew up a large part of your life in PA, you know, and, and is your family from P- Pennsylvania originally? Like, is that where they kind of grew up or? Yeah. The basically like the, uh, the Baltimore area mm-hmm. uh, is where my, my dad's side of the family is from, and my mom's side of the family is from West Virginia. So okay, all right. Yeah, so and, and, and central Mid Atlantic region there. Yeah. So I mean, basically, it's like in an area that's very, very thick and heavy with uh, hunting heritage. You know what I mean? Like that was I think, more of what I was kind of getting to. And I grew up similarly in Pennsylvania, where it's like did a lot of gun hunting. And you know, I, I you know I've said it on this show in the past. It's like I didn't really get turned on to bow hunting until I was probably thirty. You know, my dad did a little bit of trad hunting, you know, on like, you know, in in the fall. Um, But he never really took me out to bow hunt or anything like that. We would go out and gun hunt together. And he'd really only bow hunt like on days it was really windy because I never hunted from an elevated platform of any type until I was until I started bow hunting in my 30s. Um, You know, we always ground hunted and um, and still hunted essentially is how I grew up, grew up hunting. So my dad would sometimes take the trad bow out and, you know, if it was a windy day or an exceptionally wet day in the fall, that would be the only time he would bow hunt. And he would basically like, he knew where some deer would bed and he would stalk the the bedding area, you know, and that's kind of how he liked to bow hunt. So it wasn't like I would get to go out and I made the same transition as you's where it's like, as soon as I had my first experience bow hunting, I was like, you know, and people that like to gun hunt, it's like, that's awesome. Like, however you want to get out into the timber, like I'm all for it. But for me, it was, you know, as soon as I picked up a bow that first time and hunted with it, I, at that moment forward, I was like, there's, I'm not going to get the same feeling in, in the same rush with a gun as I'm getting with the bow. So there's no, like, there's no reason to go back <laughs> to it. You know what I mean? Um, did you kind of, did you have the kind of the same feeling? Cause I was curious as like, you know, I want to know why you made the switch to archery where it's kind of like you're the end all be all for you. Yeah. You know, and it is just that it's, it's the pure form. You know, I, I enjoy fly fishing also. And you know, if I was going to get hardcore about fishing again, it would definitely be, you know, with an emphasis on fly fishing. Right. But I like that purest form to it. Um, interestingly, I, as I see it anyway, with, with archery hunting, I, it's like I always knew that there was going to be a point in time, maybe not as a kid, but, you know, at least as a young adult on, I always knew there was going to be a point in time where it was just going to be archery that soaked my fire. Mm-hmm. But I didn't, like, try to force the issue or whatever, you know what I mean? I kind of felt like I... I would know when the time was right. And sure enough, it was after I killed that buck in 2015 that I had, I had five encounters with this buck 
from uh, you know from like July 25th to um, to when I killed him, which was November the 17th or something around there. Wow. And you know, I, and two of them were uh, you know with a bow in the tree, and you know the the one he was at 30 yards broadside. I, I it just wasn't light enough. You know, I ran out of light. Um, but it, you know, so that book, you know, just transformed the way I thought. You know, I was like, it didn't. It felt like I was. Uh, you know, just didn't get the reward that I wanted out of the investment that I put into it, mm-hmm. considering that I had so many close encounters with that particular buck. And, you know, I was, it was, I really enjoyed killing him. It was a very difficult rifle kill. Um, but at the same time, it just still, that was the turning point, you know, and I, I knew that it would come eventually. Right. All right. Yeah. No, I hear you, man. It's like when you have that close encounter, I mean, that's like, that's the juice, you know, it's like, I'll often get the question from being a you know a musician previously. They're like, do you ever miss it? You know, being on stage or whatever. And I'm like, you know, I really don't because I was like, I replaced it about the same time I left music. I moved back to Pennsylvania and that's like when I, you know, picked up archery hunting it was right when I moved back. And, um, I was like, I get the same rush and the same feeling when I'm, bow hunting as I did whenever I was on stage in front of 5,000 people, you know what I mean? I was like, that's the same, it's the same for me. You know what I mean? I was like, so I was like, in that sense, it's like, I don't really ever miss it. Cause I don't remit. Like I've never got, I've never lost the adrenaline part of it. Like it, I just replaced it with something else that I was equally as, as passionate about. Um, man. Yeah. It's for me, the big turning point was, um, I was actually fall Turkey hunting. And it was before I started bow hunting. This was kind of what let led me into bow hunting and i was just watching like all this natural deer movement you know and like turkey season around here you know come in like later mid to later october like pre-rut essentially right and so i was watching these i was watching these bucks chase these does and stuff like that and growing up in pennsylvania only gun hunting like the only deer movement you ever seen was deer running for their life you know what i mean it was like you didn't see them chasing or seeking or anything like that and I was talking to right. one of my father-in-law's buddies about it. And he was like, yeah, he's like, you know, that's like, you're seeing natural rut activity. And I was like, well, if that's like natural deer activity, I was like, I want more of that. And he was like, start bow hunting. And so that was it. Like, it was literally like the next year I started bow hunting and that's kind of how that's. And from there it's history. It's uh, been a, an obsession ever since essentially. So, but man, talk to me a little bit. I want to, I want to hear about like the area that you're, that you're hunting like in, in Missouri, are you still up in and around the, around the Ozarks? Yeah, I live on the Northern fringe of the Ozarks now. So actually just moved last June or July, late June, early July, whatever it was, uh, to a little bit closer to St. Louis. So I'm even more on the Northern fringe now. Um, so, you know, being at the, the Northern fringe, you know, we do have some agriculture, Mm -hmm. but it's, it's mostly, you know, um, uh, you know, steep hills, bluff country, steep hill country with a little bit of agriculture mixed in and, you know, a lot of, uh, cow pasture, you know, just a few grass. Okay. So what, uh, so what's like a typical, like, and you're not giving me your spots or whatever, but like, you know, give me a sense of like the multiple kind of terrain and topography that you're having to like encounter. Cause it sounds to me like you know, depending on where you're at, like you got to be able to hunt a little bit of hill country. You got to be able to hunt a little bit of swamp. It probably sounds like a little bit, right. Or at least like river bottom, creek bottom type stuff. You probably got to be able to hunt a little bit in open terrain. If you've got a lot of cow pasture stuff, you know, whether it's fence rows, hedges or whatever the case might be that might require like ground setups or whatever, like, 
you know, talk to me, I guess, a little bit about, you know, how you have to approach some of these areas differently based on what you're kind of given with terrain and, 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 uh, and habitat. Gotcha. So, you know, again, this is, since I just moved last year and I didn't even have time to scout preseason at all last right. season, just with moving and, you know, I, I started a new job and everything. Um, so this area was more like a scout throughout the season, you know, where I live now, but I, um, where I used to live was an hour Southwest of here. So more in the, into the Ozarks mm-hmm. and there it's definitely, you know, uh, steep hill country. And, you know, again, the, you, got, you know, cow pastures, there's not a whole lot of agriculture. Um, so you're hunting mostly big woods and I'm a big public land guy, you know, I, right. And I probably hunt ninety percent public to ten percent private, right. and yeah, there are also lots of uh, river bottoms. You know, so the Southern Missouri has lots of rivers, and a lot of those rivers are going to be around some sort of public ground, whether it be conservation land or the Ozark National Scenic Riverways or the Mark Twain National Forest. And so, there's lots of options as far as river bottoms go, which I. Uh, you know, I, I really like, I killed my biggest buck in a, in a river bottom. And, you know, I, I think that there's something to be said for the fertile soil in a river bottom. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of the river bottoms around here will hold green grass throughout the winter even. Wow. Uh, so that, that's an interesting phenomena that um, I don't hear a whole lot of guys talking about, right. but I know I have taken advantage of it a, a lot. Right. Yeah. I mean, are they, do you find that they're feeding in, in, in there? Like whenever, you know, let's just say, for example, maybe acorns start to get scarce or whatever, and you're hunting a big wood section, it's not close to, that's not close to agriculture or whatever. Like, is there, is there things in there that they're going to feed and browse on, or maybe at least be able to use as a staging area? Is that kind of the, the Oh yeah, definitely. Definitely. I think that, you know, as typically as soon as the acorns are, uh, you know, are going to be close to being gone, there's going to be a transition to where they'll start to go to those river bottoms and browsing, you know, and, uh, you know, eating that, that lower level green grass and it's sparse. It's not, you know, that's the, that's why I think it's overlooked by a lot of hunters because it's not this thick lush carpet. It's, uh, it's sparse green grass, but I've seen it with my own two eyes a lot. I, you know, it's, it's, it's definitely a thing that more hunters should probably key on in this area. Right. So I'm definitely jotting a note of that because, you know, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about Missouri because one, like I know that that's where you're hunting, but two, obviously it's like I'm planning to make a trip there this year. And like, it's, I've been doing my e-scouting and stuff like that. And I'm probably going to basically do a freelance hunt for the whole, you know, seven days that I'm there essentially. Cause I don't think I'm going to get a chance to come out this summer to do any type of, uh, you know, off season scouting or anything. And what my plan has been like, one, let me ask, I'll ask you, I'll ask you this question first and I'll give you my plan. Like, what's the pressure like in Missouri on public? Like, do you get a lot of pressure? You know, you know, is it a little bit of pressure? Does it really just, you know, only come in like, you know, the beginning of November and otherwise like you're pretty good. Like what's your, what's your sense of the pressure that public gets around there? Uh, Missouri has a lot of hunters. Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's an interesting dynamic because, you know, every state, you know, governs and manages their, uh, they're hunting in their public land in a different way. And Missouri has taken, you know, Missouri's tags are relatively cheap. Uh, you can kill two bucks. And, it, you know, so Missouri has taken the approach of, you know, it's a, it's a draw, uh, not a draw hunt. It's a, it's a draw for people to come to Missouri, you know, mm-hmm. um, they, they really facilitate that, you know, 
in contrary to our neighbors to the north, where their focus is, you know, Iowa is much more on quality over quantity. You know, it's a six hundred dollar right. tag. You got to buy points, and you know, but you can go up there and have the opportunity to kill, you know, a monster buck. Right. Uh, so, you know, there is certainly some credence to what your approach is, where you're you're kind of getting best of both worlds. Mm-hmm. Uh, deer don't know a political boundary, although, you know, just you know, as soon as you cross the border into Missouri, you're going to have a lot more hunting pressure yeah. and and things of that nature. So, I do think that the you know the the hunting pressure is more, but it's it's also by design. Right. And you know, I just don't really look at it as um, a deterrent. That you know. In most places. Now, there are certain places where, you know, if there's a, a car lot full of cars or whatever, then it's not worth going there. Right. But if you can understand where your average hunters are going to go, or even if you know, like, you know, specifically where tree stands are uh, that are left behind or whatever, then I almost feel like it's an advantage, you know, because you just, uh, you know, you scout around that and you know that that's going to impact your movement. Um, so then it, you know, in a sense, it creates some sort of funnel for you. Right, right. Yeah, I, I totally, totally hear you. It's funny, just you know, whenever I think of pressure, right? It's uh, um, you know, because I've you know, I hunt Ohio too, and Ohio is you know, I would say is you know, similar to Missouri in the fact that it's it's an over the counter tag. Um, the public out there, you know, I've been going out there for several years, and year over year, it gets more and more pressure. You know, especially like the one area I go to, like if you're in like the I'll mention the county is just in general because there's a ton of public in these counties. But like if you're in Muskegon or Conshocton County in Ohio, like those are like the first like uh, probably the first things that come up in like a Google search as far as like big bucks in Iowa or in Ohio. Right. There's a couple other really, really good counties that actually trumpet that are are more well known now, but are probably less um, traveled to for a couple of reasons. They're a little further away because those two big buck counties are probably the first two big buck counties you encounter into the Midwest from the East Coast. So anyone who's coming from the east, whether it's Pennsylvania, Jersey, New York, Delaware, whatever, like Ohio is usually your easiest, like big buck state to hunt, right? Because it's the closest and yeah. the least expensive for you. So the pressure there is pretty, you know, pretty good. But even the pressure you get there for public hunting, uh, and like I, I tell people that have never hunted Pennsylvania public, I'm like, man, like even the most pressured spot I've been to in Ohio is like not even compared, doesn't even compare to the pressure that you see in Pennsylvania on public. You know, I was like, it's just night, night and day. And so I always like to try to get a gauge because some folks, you know, will be like, oh, it gets a fair amount of pressure. And I'm like, I saw two guys in two weeks. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like when I was in Iowa, a guy told me, he's like, yeah, that one piece gets a fair amount of pressure. And I saw one guy in the parking lot in two weeks. You know what I mean? And, and, <laughs> yeah. and that was it. Right. You know? It's like, I'm like, man. It's this, definitely different. Yeah. I was like, man, this is like the private in Pennsylvania doesn't hunt like this. You know what I mean? So, um, but yeah, yeah, but so my plan is this, man. So tell me, like, you know, what you're, what you think of kind of how I'm setting this up. Like, so I, I'm anticipating I'm going to have some pressure, right? And what I'm kind of looking at on the map is kind of like what you're talking about. It's like I'm looking like where are the entrance points and stuff like that. The other thing I'm also looking for is I'm looking for any place where there's an easy access point, so like maybe a parking lot that has, and I'm looking, I'm trying to look at pieces that have some type of body of water, whether it's like a lake or whether it's like a a river or a large creek that runs through or whatever the case is, that if that creek cuts off part of the property from the parking, from the convenient parking. And I've found a couple spots like that. And that's the, those are the places I'm probably going to prioritize looking because I'll have to kayak into them. And the only way other people will be able to get in there is either one kayak or they'll have to wade across whatever body of water that is to get to that part that's cut off. So that's kind of like my, 
initial game plan for freelance hunting? Like, what do you think of that, that approach? I, uh, yeah, I mean, that, that's, that's good. You're on the right track for sure. I okay. think that you kind of summed it up. Well, I would say that the pressure you're going to see is probably about like the, the pressure that I saw on private in Pennsylvania. Right. Uh, so, you know, I agree with your perspective there and, right. you know, I hope that maybe that helps paint a picture for some people to understand just how intense the pressure can be in, in Pennsylvania, mm-hmm. uh, at least, you know, where I was as a kid. And of course, you know, I, I was younger, so it's going to seem, you know, probably exaggerated or whatever, but right. it's um, pretty fair. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so you're on the right track, you know, anything in my opinion that you can do to separate yourself, you know, from, uh, from the average Joe hunter, right. um, water's always the first thing that sticks out in my mind. You know, um, because any, anybody can kind of, you know, can go deep. Mm-hmm. Um, if that, you know, that, that'll definitely separate you for, you know, just going deep in itself. But if you can go deep and cross water, now you're talking. Right. Um, and I, you know, I, I've got a kayak. I've, I've done the, the kayak access, the canoe access. I'll do whatever it takes to get to where I can kill him. Right. Um, but even just crossing a creek, you know, I, I don't, I'll do whatever it takes again. So I don't even carry waders unless I would have to. And I would just assume not carry the waders and just strip down across the sucker, you know, right. <laughs> I, the biggest buck I ever killed, I killed on uh, November the 18th and it was, it was cold. Um, and, and I just stripped down and, and crossed the river, you know, up to my thighs, I'd say, and, uh, middle of November cold, those are stream water, but, uh, <laughs> You know, I got there and I, it was much more effective, you know, and there wasn't anybody there. So right. but the other, the other way in was three and a half miles. So, you know, I didn't have anything to worry about. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. There wasn't nobody walking that three and a half miles to get there either crossing the same way you did or they were, or they weren't, or they weren't making it. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So you know, there, there's definitely ways to get creative and that's what I think that's, you know, that's a huge thing aspect of what separates the, the average hunter that's going to show up at the parking lot in the morning and not, you know, maybe have a loose game plan or whatever. Um, but you know, with those that are actually, you know, diligently have a game plan, even if it's not, you know, to a tree, the game plan is, you know, I'm going to feel my way through here to make sure that I'm out of the area where other hunters are going to be. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I I mean, the one thing too, I think even whenever you're doing your e-scouting, you know, I'll see some folks that'll make the mistake of like, they'll, they'll pinpoint like, Hey, there's a saddle here, there's this here, but it's like those really obvious features are the same things that are attracting guys who are maybe not quite as familiar with what they're looking at on maps or, you know, or they can identify these handful of features, you know what I mean? And cause I mean, when I'll go to Ohio and scout and stuff like that, like I'll walk through some of the saddles because I want to see, are deer making their way through here? Are they laying down sign here? Cause then from there it's like, where are they headed? Like, where are they going? And almost every time I hit a saddle, it's like, I'm going to see like a scent wick or I'm going to see like an old tree stand or something like that. But I want to be there to know that like, okay, they are using this. So now I can start to now pin down or, or start to now filter and understand like why they would be using that terrain feature. And then where are they going and where are they coming from? So I can try to intercept them on one place or the other versus fighting somebody for that saddle location. Um, you know, so that's like one of the things too, that I've started kind of thinking about is not just 
how close am I to the parking lot? It's like what features are going to really stick out that someone's going to gravitate toward that I can pretty much cross those off because they're going to be the easiest ones identifiable from a from an area or from a topo that someone will understand. So, but yeah, man, I like I like uh, I like what I'm hearing crossing crossing streams and yeah, maybe I'll adopt your style, man. Maybe I'll get down to the skivvies and 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 take a swim one day. You know, I haven't quite got there. I haven't quite got there yet, but uh. Now, I want to talk to you a little bit, man, about this past season, man, because if, if I'm not mistaken, and if I remember correctly, you had a pretty good uh, pretty good year this past year, right? Yeah, I killed two bucks. Yeah. Uh, you know, it was, and considering the fact that I was learning new territory and everything, you know, it was uh, it was a good year. I, you know, I learned a lot and, you know, hunted mostly, I mean, I, I would say probably 80% of the hunts that I, uh, that I hunted last year, I was basically stepping into an area where I'd never even been before, you know, while going out or, uh, maybe I've been to the area, but not to the spot, mm-hmm. you know, and I was like, you know, scout my way in or whatever. Right. So it was, uh, yeah, it was good year. And I, I killed two, two very nice bucks. Right. Nice. What, uh, what do you think, uh, attributed to your, uh, to putting, to fill in those two tags, especially since you were kind of walking into places with, you know, limited to no, no info. Yeah. Um, you know, it's interesting because I think it's uh, it's three bucks in a row now I have killed. You know, uh, of course, I, you know, we're, the first time in thing is, you know, a, a big deal right now. And I totally agree with that. Right. Uh, but that can be really difficult first time in if you're just cyber scouting, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I the last three bucks that I've killed have been just that. Now, one of the um, one of the bucks. I was familiar with the area, you know, I've, I've been to that piece of property uh, quite a few times. Uh, but the two of the last three were, I never even stepped foot on the property before and was able to find places on, you know, via cyber scouting that put me in a position to, you know, to harvest a coping young buck, uh, first time in there. So that was, I would have to attribute it to that, you know, and, right. you know, with my most recent successes anyway. Right. What what was it whenever you were kind of walking through, like as you're as you're you know hunting slash you know scouting your way through, you know, like you said, like you may not have a tree in mind, or you may not have, you know, it might be your first time in that area. Like, what was there anything that we, when you saw where you're like, okay, this is where I got to set up? Like, what was that thing that told you like this is where I need to be? Uh, so, you know, it's just it's a lot of times it's a feel, you know, um, and you know, a lot of guys will say that, especially a lot of successful killers will say that there's a lot of credence to it. And what I find interesting though, also Clint is there's a feel to it when you're looking at it on the map too. It's, it's not as pronounced, you know, it's mm-hmm. not as, uh, as strong a feeling, but like you were saying earlier, <clears throat> you can look at these most common features, these big saddles and, and, uh, you know, uh, terrain funnels and such. And, but everybody else can see that too, pretty obviously. But once you find one that looks like you can, it can you just get the good feel that it's uh, it's going to have you know the the winds are going to line up possibly you know prevailing winds southwest or whatever with the terrain the way it is and it's a little bit hidden and you've got you know water between that and the parking lot or whatever um, you kind of get that feeling with cyber scouting also mm-hmm. and so on you know two of the last three I you know I, I use that. Um, knowledge on cyber scouting and kind of got that feeling with an area and then went in and in the dark, even on both of these was, you know, reading terrain, 
and making the decision. You know, so what I do basically is on my computer, I will draw an area on Onyx, right? So I'll go on Onyx on my computer and I'll draw, a, you know, I think they call it shape, right? Where you can, right. You can uh, calculate the area of a shape. Uh, I'm not necessarily so worried about the calculation of the area as much as I am. I want to be able to, especially in the dark, pull up my phone and I want to know when I'm approaching that area uh, because that's when I'm going to start, you know, getting a feel for the woods around me. I'm going to slow down my approach, of course, and, uh, you know, start to try to find that tree. So, you know, and it, that's difficult in the dark, uh, but it's a heck of a lot easier if you have that shape, that shape transpired onto your phone that you know that you're getting to this, you know, and it gives you a much better perspective. Right. Um, then uh, on the on the other the the other of the three, the one that I killed last year during rifle season, um, I with a bow, of course. Mm-hmm. I was hunting a, a property that I was a lot more familiar with, so I knew what the um, you know the vegetation and the landscape would look like. Although I'd never been to that exact area, so you know, I kind of had a better feeling for it, and I. It, Everything that I knew about this place was kind of thrown out the window last year. It was just a really odd year. I think a lot of it had to do with uh, there were just not hardly any acorns left mm-hmm. uh, by the time we got to November, hardly at all. Right. And so I, I just I went in and uh, put a sit in and in an area where I, you know, I thought would be good. It was actually like a river bottom type where it had green, you know, some green grass, that really sparse green grass, mm-hmm. and put a morning hunt in and. I saw one little buck and it just, it, I just didn't, you know, didn't like that, that feel. It didn't work out in the dark that morning. Uh, so I got down and I was going to leave all together and go to a different parking lot and where I knew some of the guys were seeing some, uh, a lot of buck action. And I thought, well, all right, I'm going to hop on the e-bike and check out this, this feeding area that I know is about 300 yards away, you know, deeper into the, uh, into the property just to make sure I can check it off while I'm in the area. And I went there and it was just tore up with scrapes along the edge of the field. Uh, so I just, you know, logically deduced that there's a lot of buck activity here and they're probably not bedded too far. And it was middle of November. So they're probably going to be bedded next to the doe bedding area. Right. And I, I knew that I, even though I've never been to that particular spot or that area, um, <clears throat> I just knew where the bedding would be in relation to the food mm-hmm. where I suspected where it would be. And I knew that I could get the prevailing wind, the thermal and my entry to jive. So that's the, I, I refer to it as the trifecta. Right. And I always want those three things to jive for every set. If I can get those three things to jive uh, and I, you know, I, I have a good hunch that there's, there's a buck in that area and I know which way he's going to be traveling within, you know, within, uh, reason anyway, uh, then I like my eye. Right. Nice. Yeah, man. I've, I've used that area tool in the past too. It's funny cause I've never used it the way you just talked about using it. And now I'm going to have to start doing that because I've used it just to kind of mark areas that I'm going to walk into and, and, and scout maybe where I'm like, all right, this piece of public I've never been to before. There's three clear cuts and like small pieces of timber in between each clear cut that connect them, which 
Bucks are probably cruising these downwind edges because I'm imagining those are probably better than these. So I'm going to go check these. And so I'll just like box around it or whatever. Same as you. It'll give me an area, but I don't really care like how many acres it is necessarily. I'm just more interested in like what area I'm going to focus on. But I've never used it whenever I was hunting that way to know that like, okay, I'm into where I think the good stuff should start. Especially if I've never been there before, I need to slow down and start paying attention. Like that's a really, that's a really interesting way to use it, man. I'm going to have to put that in my, uh, in my bag of tricks. So that, uh, in, in the, the, in the whole, like, as soon as you saw like all the hot sign, it was like immediately looking and going, all right, where's the next, where's the most logical doe bedding? You know what I mean? Cause that's, that's where the bucks are going to be. Right. It's like, so you just think, look on the map and like, all right, where's the terrain feature? Where's the habitat feature that says this is likely doe bedding. You know, it's the first best bedding off the food, you know, usually. So that's awesome, man. Yeah, exactly. Nice. And I actually employed a, a tactic that I'd never used before for that hunt that I heard you talking with Andy May about not too long ago. And I used a uh, Montana Dreamy Doe decoy. Mm. And I, I, I'm not going to say that I wouldn't have harvested that buck without it, but it certainly, it, it, it made it. Uh, well, I don't even know. Cause it actually kind of made it a very tenuous situation for a while, like <laughs> tins and needles for 10 minutes showdown with this thing. Uh, well, I had the DM camera arm, uh, flopping against my hip and yeah, I didn't, I didn't get it filmed either. So, right. uh, but anyway, it was uh, an intense encounter for 10 minutes and he was just sitting there frothing and dripping from the mouth and he was looking at that doe decoy. Uh, it was, it was intense. That's awesome, uh, man. Uh, but anyway, I remember you recently talking to Andy May about how you were wanting to incorporate some, uh, some decoying into your arsenal. And yeah. I, I just figured I'd mention that because that's the, uh, that was my first time using a, a decoy and it worked out well. Nice. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's definitely something I'm going to put in my, in my arsenal this year. Um, only cause I'm going to try some, I'm going to try more, uh, ground hunting. Cause that's the other thing I'm kind of looking at too, is like, not only is it where, where, can, where is water cutting off part of the access, like to an area to reduce pressure, but also what are some places where you can't get into a tree? You know what I mean? Like that it's just almost, it's impossible that even using a saddle, like there's not a tree big enough to get into, you know, there's one spot in this one area in Ohio that I'm just like completely stoked about hunting this year. Cause when I scouted it this winter and on this particular piece, like we've got some like big deer on camera, this piece of public. And, um, there's a scrape in this area that like in multiple scrapes and multiple licking branches. And it's, there's not a single tree nearby that you could set up in anywhere like there it's all on the edge of this old clear cut where the clear cuts too old to like really walk through or make your way through or anything like that so it's funneling deer around but there's all these like little super brushy like logging roads that are all kind of like around it and it all kind of comes to this one spot which used to be a log yard landing but now it's just like a menagerie of like garbage everywhere and like not literally garbage but just like brush briars tall grass you know what i mean just like gnarly and uh and there's just no tree to get into. And there's a nice, there's a nice primary scrape area that's right there. And I was like, man, this is like the perfect ground setup to where I can kind of nestle back in that clear cut a little bit, set up a little decoy, you know, and it should be, should be good to go. But it was interesting because I was talking to Tony Peterson about, about decoying. And the one thing that he had mentioned to me, you know, I'm curious, like I'm not familiar with the decoy that you were using, but he, he likes to use a doe feeding decoy versus a buck decoy. Like what decoy were you using? Was it a, was it a buck or was it a doe? Yeah, I was using a doe decoy. Yeah. Okay. Uh, the Montana dreamy doe decoy. Okay. But I, I, I thought 
that I heard before that Tony mostly liked buck decoys, but I, I could be wrong. I, yeah. Um, I've no, not used a buck decoy. Yeah. He, he said he's used but, them in the past, but he said he's just found that he gets a better response with a doe decoy with its head down feeding because the buck can't really tell if it's a doe, if it's a buck. So he's not sure if he's going to be aggressive or if he just needs to come in and check it out. And the other thing that he said it makes sense too is like you know you want them to come into the decoy kind of calm he's like and there's nothing more calm a deer like other than a deer with their head down eating acorns or eating alfalfa or whatever right they're clearly not on edge if they've got their head down feeding he's like and so that was and he's like you know he said he's like i don't use them often enough to be able to tell you definitively he's like but that was the sense that i've got with every experience that i've had with using a doe feeding decoy was that they just came in a little bit less on edge and other deer would feed near them because they were like, just curious. They're like, Oh, who's that out there? Like they, I don't smell them. Like how they get here. You know, it's like, and I know everyone It's in this town, you know? So it's like, it just piques your curiosity as well. And so I have a buck decoy. So I'm thinking I'm going to have to get like a, a doe one just so I can kind of try both and see what happens. But um, yeah, stay tuned. We'll see how badly I screw that up. <laughs> First decoy. <laughs> you know, end up- yeah, you know, I think a lot of it's going to, you know, will depend on situational uh, circumstance, you know, because mm-hmm. like where I live now, there's a, a lot more deer and I would not use that doe decoy here. Right. Um, I was actually, when I killed that buck that I was just referring to, I was back in, uh, the area where I used to live and you know, it's, it's a different deer density. Mm-hmm. So they're not nearly as many does. And, and I, I think that that was, you know, a big reason for the success and along with the timing and the setup, of course, but, right. um, yeah, the, uh, I, I don't recommend using the doe decoy where there's, uh, a high doe, uh, uh, population just because they, yeah, I think your odds of that the doe's acting wary and, you know, Mm-hmm. just getting skittish or something, or maybe even wanting to, you know, fight the, the new doe or figure out who she is right. a little more than what you probably want. Right. So it sounds like, man, like, I mean, I know that you, you hunt mobile, but like, have you always hunted mobile or is mobile something you over the past, like however many years started, started adopting? When did all, that all kind of start to happen? Oh, uh, that interestingly, that happened about the same time where my, you know, my passion shifted, you know, just strictly archery. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was probably a season or two where I was mostly, um, you know, hunting in tree stands, but you know, I, I, I had some degree of mobility, I guess you'd say from the, you know, the time I started hunting, mm-hmm. um, but just not on the same level as what I am now. Now I rarely hunt the same tree twice. Right. Uh, or I'll, you know, if I'm, if it's a really good spot, I'll hunt it, you know, uh, no more than early season, once in the early season, once in the mid season, once in the late season. I, right. I, I just don't really ever do anything other than that. Right. But I've always had some degree of, uh, you know, mobile hunting, even if it was just, you know, my lone wolf climber. Right. Um, but nothing to the degree of what it is now. Right. Right. I mean, do you, do you mix in a little bit of ground hunting as well? Or is that something that you've not, that you've not fooled around with much? I do. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I definitely will. I'll do, you know, whatever it takes. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I definitely, you know, prefer to get up in the tree, even if it's, you know, um, you know, a short climb, uh, or just, you know, a little bit better of a vantage point, mm-hmm. but you know, there's not, not, a not every place that allows that, you know, not every place has that type of, uh, 
uh, a setup to where that's more advantageous than being on the ground. Right. Yeah. No, hundred percent agree with you, man. That's kind of been my mantra for this year is I kind of refer to it as being multiple, right? It's like, I'm a big football guy, big Steeler fan. Right. And, you know, love the three, four defense. And when they get into their, like, you know, odd packages and stuff like that, there were almost turns into like to an um, amoeba defense where you don't know who the linebacker is and who the, the free safety is and who's coming, who's not. It's like, I kind of look at the same hunting the same way where it's like, I'm just trying to be as multiple as possible. That way, whatever the scenario calls for, I'm equipped to try to execute on whatever's being presented, right? So whether that's a ground setup, whether that's in a tree, whether that's crossing water, what you know, whatever the case is, like I just don't want to leave a hunt, especially whenever I do these out-of-state travel hunts where I'm coming home going, man, I wish I would have been able to do X, you know what I mean? Like, I just don't want, I want to be able to leave if I don't have a tag filled and go, you know what? There wasn't anything I could have done any different. You know, there wasn't like a stone I left unturned, you know? So, so I hear you there, man. Doing yeah. whatever it takes. I totally agree. You know, I, that's how I left the public land challenge last year. You know, I was like, you know, a lot of my buddies are asking me, well, you know, how'd you, you feel like you did good, you know, or, you know, are you happy? Like, yeah, I did everything I could do. And I was, you know, set up in favorable positions on mature deer every sit. It just, you know, it just it doesn't always pan out, you know? Right. Yeah. Sometimes you eat the bear, sometimes the bear eats you. It's as simple as that, <laughs> you know? Exactly. So what's your plans for this year, man? What are you, what are you doing? What are you doing for whitetail for, uh, for bow hunting this year? And of course, Missouri, but are you, you headed out, out, uh, out of state anywhere? Uh, yeah, I'm planning on it. Yeah. Uh, as of now, planning on going to Nebraska, Awesome. for the for the season opener in early september the first week in september nice that is that is one of the things i would like to try to do at some point is nebraska early season you have to let me know how it goes yeah yeah definitely i've never never been there well i mean i've been you know, i've driven through it but i've never hunted there mm-hmm. and I, i'm really excited about you know the prospect of getting one on the board mm-hmm. before coming home uh to the opener in missouri on september the 15th and Hopefully my son and I can get on the board pretty quickly here. Nice. What? Uh, so it would uh, Nebraska be public? Yes. Yeah. Yes, definitely. Nice. And what's your what's what's kind of your process for planning these, man? Like, how do you logistically, you know, plan them? I guess for to to start, like, you know, do you are you going solo on this trip? Like, where are you staying? Like, how did you how did you pick Nebraska? Kind of walk me through that your thought process. So, you know, I, this, this year has just been kind of up in the air and I, I didn't apply for, uh, for, you know, for elk hunting or anything like that. Cause I just didn't know, you know, have some, uh, the world's, you know, the world's crazy. Right now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 But even before that, you know, I had some changes professionally and, uh, really just wasn't sure. So I, I knew that I could fall back on, you know, Nebraska with, uh, with an over the counter tag. So, uh, I just, that's kind of where I am now. It looks like, you know, I'll be able to make that happen mm-hmm. and uh, not sure, uh, Dan Infault possibly talking about going, mm-hmm. we've been bouncing some ideas and, uh, looking at some areas. So where I am right now in the process is, you know, just trying to identify a few pieces of, uh, public ground that, you know, would potentially be favorable, you know, have, uh, some good Intel on, you know, numbers of, deer numbers of mature bucks things like that i I think we've got that kind of we're right now i think we've got that narrowed down right and then uh you know so next step would be you know to get a little more granular with it and uh of course you know you always got to figure out the uh the camping and sleeping arrangement and all that stuff so 
that's kind of where we are right now. Right. Nice. Yeah. I mean, the camping and sleeping arrangements always the thing that kind of like throws me for a loop whenever I'm planning these trips. And I actually just took to like, I'm converting a cargo trailer into like a tiny home on wheels to be able to roll with me and just like, Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, man. And it's like, I mean, being honest with you, it's a pain in the rear end trying to build like, cause I'm not like, I'm not the most mechanically inclined person you'll ever meet in your life. Um, so it's like, I'm a measure 10 times cut once kind of guy. <laughs> so it takes me a while to get, <laughs> to get things done. Um, but it's coming along and that was really the reason for building it was cause I was just tired of trying to figure out where I was going to stay. And if, if the public I was on here, like wasn't hunting well and I wanted to go 45 minutes or an hour somewhere else, it's like, I didn't want to be stuck because I was had a, you know, a hotel or a cabin or whatever. I wanted to just be able to pick up and go to the next piece of public and, you know, set down home you know in that place and, and then spend my time there so that was really the the precipice for building that thing but what's uh so you're so when you get there man you start are you going to go and pre-scout it at all or is this going to all be kind of like only online and then kind of you know freelance hunt the whole thing most likely no on the boots uh boots on the ground scouting beforehand i i mean i you know as it is right now, I'm like, yeah, I'm going to try to make it up there. You know, and you know how it goes. Yeah. Uh, when it's i I'm going to try to do, you know, when it involves an extra trip away from the family or whatever, it probably isn't going to happen, but I will, you know, keep my mind open and, and try to make that happen. Uh, but most likely it'll be just show up a couple of days before the opener and hopefully get some, uh, you know, some couple of nice, uh, targets on a pattern. Right. Right. Now, when you do that, are you just, I mean, out there, I mean, I guess you can just glass from afar, right? Because you, it's, I'm imagining you're probably hunting some areas that are relatively open. Is that the case? Yeah, that's, uh, I, I believe that will be the approach. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. What uh, are you now when you get out there, when you, when you're doing these out of state hunts and stuff like that, are you, you know, do you run trail cameras whenever you're there trying to pick up like a little bit extra Intel, like during the course of the trip or, or do you just completely rely on, you know, woodsmanship scouting, reading sign? I have typically been the type to rely on woodsmanship, scouting, and sign. Right. Um, I've I've ran a few cameras here and there. Definitely don't have a scientific approach or system to it, but I, I recognize that that's probably the weakest aspect of my uh, my scouting and you know like the actual hunting mm-hmm. aspect of it. So um, I'm making a concerted effort to get better at it because, you know, it really is a, a valuable tool that it's, it's available. Why not use it? Right. Yeah. No, I'm kind of the same way where it's, I do use them. Um, and I, and I like them. Um, there was a time where I probably relied on them too much. Um, and I recognized it. And so now it's like the way I use them is, is, is way different than it was just a couple of years ago where it's like, I, I've got, a, I've got some out now just doing inventory on some new places. Cause even in Pennsylvania, when I'm hunting public, it's like, I typically don't hunt the same pieces year over year. It's like, I usually always have a couple new pieces of public that I've tried to investigate and jump on. And so it's always a, a learning curve every year to a degree. Um, but what I basically use this for is just grab some inventory and then I'll move them. If I, if I saw some scrapes during the postseason whenever I was scouting, then I'll move them to those scrapes and I just let them there. And then, you know, I'll pick up the inventory as I go through and hunt that area. I might pull the card or whatever. And then I'm really just kind of logging that stuff for the following year to understand like what the deer are doing. That way I'll know whether or not it's something worth going back to check out, you know, the following year or was the, was the deer movement so poor, like in those areas that I looked at and thought that would be the best areas that it's not even worth going back to. 
And that's kind of how I use it. I almost use it to help me just whittle down the areas that I'm going to prioritize, not just that year, but for future years too. So, but uh, yeah, it, those long-term soaks are, are the, are the way to go to, to get, you know, real Intel. Yeah. Um, and it always has to be combined with, you know, uh, MRI, most recent, most recent intelligence from, from the scouting perspective, you know, so yeah. I, you know, I've seen so many times where you, uh, a certain property will develop trends over the years mm-hmm. and, you know, for two or three years in a, in a row, it's going to be relatively consistent. You know, the, mm-hmm. the acorn mast is consistent and, uh, you know, that seems to really dictate the feeding patterns in October in this area. Mm-hmm. And, you know, then there's going to be that year that it just is so off and it throws everything, you know, just out of, uh, out of sync from what the, the previous pattern was. Yeah. And, you know, it can just make you, you know, scratch your head. But if you just take the approach that you do to the out of state hunt where you're going to go, uh, you know, match up what you've seen from cyber scouting, and you're going to use the absolute most recent intelligence that you got from scouting. Uh, you know, I, I think that a, a lot of hunters would do a, a better job of harvesting bucks on land that they've uh, that they've hunted for years because they have established those patterns themselves. And mm-hmm. you know, I, we all know the adage that a, a buck is better at patterning a person than a, a person <laughs> better than a buck at any day. Right. And I think there's a lot of truth to that. And just, you know, I feel like I'm at my sharpest. I'm at my best. I'm on point when I am in uh, a new area and, you know, really just observing everything, taking everything in, reading every, uh, you know, minute piece of sign there is. And that's really exciting. Yeah, no, I'm the same way. It's like I I feel more alive. I feel a little bit more free. And I I 100% agree with you, man. When I go to a new place, it's like I'm way more dialed in, even though I don't know anything about the place. It's just like the excitement of like what's possible keeps me kind of keeps me tuned in versus on a property where I have familiarity where it's like I'll get a little lazy, right? Because I'll think I know what's going on here. I'm just going to try to get to where I need to get to or whatever, as opposed to like really using my hike into wherever I'm going to reevaluate what might be happening, you know, on the property. Um, and so I definitely, I definitely hear you there. The one thing I started doing this year, you know, while I was in Iowa was once I found a buck and I wanted to try to go after you know, and I, and I knew there were some, you know, scrapes in the area. I hung a camera on scrapes and it wasn't to try to get him to, it wasn't to try to get that deer on camera. It was more monitoring it to making sure that that does were still hitting it at night. Cause I knew if does were still in the area and hitting that, that the bucks were still going to be in the area. So I was almost using it more for, you know, are there does who are active in the area versus is, are these scrapes going to dry up and do I need to move on? You know, that way I wasn't wasting my time with a sit for a full day, whenever I could have just pulled a camera card and looked at it and been like, yep, this is dried up. It's time to move on. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah that, that, well played. I like that approach. Yeah. Well, it was really convenient because I had a cell camera, you know what I mean? So it's like, I would get up in the morning and be like, yep, four does hit it at four thirty AM place is still hot. Let's do it. You know, and that was kind of, it's kind of how I use those. But, uh, so I want to talk to you, man, about, you know, we're getting close to an hour here and I want to be sensitive to your time, but I do want to talk to you just about your saddle gear. Cause I'm always interested in what guys are using, you know, and how they're kind of setting up their gear and stuff like that. So if you wouldn't mind, dude, just talk me through like your general setup, like, you know, platform versus, you know, some other type of, uh, you know, uh, whether it's uh, ring of steps platform, whatever the case is, or, you know, what pack are you using climbing situation? Just talk me through your, your general essentials. Sure. 
Yeah. Well, I, as far as saddle goes, I used the, the Phantom, and I was able to use the Phantom all last year throughout the entire hunting season, uh, you know, as we were prototyping it and making changes throughout the year. And uh, it's hands down, it's not even close, the most comfortable, versatile, and just the best saddle I've ever uh, I've ever put on my body, and I can tell you that. It's, mm-hmm. uh, I love that saddle. Yeah. And so I, I also use the Predator Platform. And I, you know, I've always said that the Predator platform might be my favorite piece of hunting gear in my entire arsenal. Um, and I don't know if that's because I, my first year of saddle hunting, I used a ring of steps. And then once I got turned onto the Predator platform, like, oh my gosh, I've seen the light. This, yeah. is, this is how it's comfortable. This is how it's, uh, uh, it, it makes, you know, it's for those that are wondering, about, you know, getting into saddle hunting and all, it's just, make sure you try it with a platform, not just a ring of steps. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's, uh, that's my setup jumping in the tree. And as far as climbing goes, I, I kind of, I don't really know anybody else that uses the system that I've got, but I, uh, so I think I have a little bit of a unique, uh, climbing system. I use a Cranford strap on step. Mm-hmm. And, uh, for those that don't know, it's just, a uh, it's like a, a poly cord with a berry in it, and it's just got one step on it. It's it's a metal step, but it's it's not very big. You know, it's just like a ninety degree with rounded edges, and uh, so you're able to you know I'm able to cinch that down around uh, any size tree basically within reason, and you know there's ways to modify it to go to uh, bigger or smaller. Right. So I'll cinch that that Cranford around the around the tree, and then I have CMI rock climbing etriers, um, which, you know, is what most people in our world refer to as an aider. Right. Um, you know, CMI makes three, four and five step, uh, etriers. So, you know, it's a, it's, it's, it's not just a DIY, um, you know, aider, it's actual rock climbing, um, uh, strap style step. And so each of my, uh, Cranford strap on steps has, uh, an, CMI etrier attached to it and I just tape it to the step. And so, um, I usually just take four of those in the early season. I'll only have three with me and they're about the size of the softball. Um, I'm not weight them, but you know, it's, it's not very much. Right. Uh, so I'll carry three of those in the early season and then, uh, you know, mid to late season, I'll carry four in case I need to get up to that 30 feet height. But, um, so I will, uh, you know, just, you know, put the, the, the step on the tree, climb up the aider, lean back in my linesman's belt, and uh, you know, set the next step with the aider on it. And then once I get to my top um, Cranford step, so and they'll either be on my third or fourth one, then I also have a CMI HRA attached to the post of my Predator platform. So I set my Predator platform at, uh, you know, usually around head height, and I will just kind of, uh, you know, step into the HRA and go around the Predator platform, so it allows me to get some additional height out of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, man, I, I actually watched a video of you of you of you climbing with it, and it, I got to say it's pretty slick. Um, where it's like I considered, like as I was watching, I was like, man, I might need to try this. Um, I mean, I like the, my the setup that I have currently. I'm just using two, you know, uh, modified lone wolf sticks that I cut off at, uh, like 17 inches, and I put a double top step on it, and I use a five step, you know, uh, climbingator, uh, black diamond rock climbingator. And with that, it's like I can get to like, 
uh, you know, if I put my platform a couple feet up above the last step, I can get probably like 16 feet, you know, and a lot of times in the places I'm hunting some of these swamps and stuff like that, that's enough, you know, especially early season and stuff. But I wouldn't mind having something even lighter and smaller. And what you have going on is pretty is pretty freaking slick. Um, so I'm gonna have to maybe give it a whirl and then give you a call for some uh, for some pointers on how to make sure I'm doing everything correctly and set up the appropriate way that I'm not you know endangering myself potentially. So but, absolutely, uh, yeah. I, I find it uh, you know super light, super easy. Um, you know, some people say they you know they've tried it and they have a little bit of trouble getting down in the dark or whatever. Um, I, I, I don't have any issues with it and I, I just, it's kind of fun. I enjoy it. It's, it matches my style of, uh, athletic hunting, you know, I, yeah. I, I want everything to be streamlined. I want everything to be tight, quiet. You know, I'm huge with stealth wrap. I stealth wrap everything, yeah, <laughs> including my e-bike. My e-bike is stealth wrapped. I'm not kidding. <laughs> <laughs> that's all, I don't know that I've heard anybody doing that. But that's next level, man. <laughs> yeah, yeah, literally. Uh, I'll send you a picture of it. My entire e-bike is self nice. Uh So everything I do is, you know, built around that athletic um, style of hunting. And you know, so I think you also asked what pack I use. I use the Badlands Dash Pack, mm, okay. and I find that to be the perfect pack for me because it's a it's a longer, more narrow pack. Um, you know, I'm a I'm a taller skinnier guy. So, you know, I, I like that it, it fits and conforms to me and I, I can cinch down with the lash strap, the horizontal lash strap. I can cinch it down to where it's tight. You know, it's almost like you don't even know what's on you. Right. Um, and, and, you know, if I do have any, you know, like I have carry my predator platform on the outside of it, I can cinch it down to where there's no flop in it. There's no play in it. And, you know, once it, when you get those things, even externally, you know, like extra clothes or your predator platform or whatever it is, when you have those things cinched down real tight mm-hmm. against you, even if they stick out a little bit, um, they, they just don't catch everything, you know? So yeah. you got to have a pack that, in my opinion, uh, for me anyway, that, that really lends itself to that athletic style where I can cinch everything down and I can ease my way through the brush and it doesn't catch everything. And it just doesn't make a lot of noise. Right. Yeah. The one thing I did this year um, is I took the predator pack and I put some Molly attachments on the back to be able to hold like a camera and stuff like that. So I can, you know, they're basically like water bottle attachments that I could use to like take in my GoPro, take in like my, you know, my main camera and stuff like that. And I can basically fit everything on the predator pack. And then I roll my ghillie suit jacket up underneath and, and attach it to the bottom. And I can basically run my entire rig from early season through at least probably pre-rut without having to change to a bigger pack and just use the predator pack and that's it which is pretty which is pretty slick i mean it's pretty lightweight and streamlined that's awesome did you do the mods on the straps i didn't yet no no that's the one thing that i'm lacking because i I do need to get beefier straps because the straps start to start to kind of just they don't want to stay in the right place and they, they get a little, a little sore just because of how thin they are and they move around a little bit. So I, I definitely need to get some, you know, better pack straps. And once I do that, that thing's, that thing will be money at that point then. So that's the, uh, that's the plan anyway. But so one last question for you, brother, before I let you get going, man, cause I know I kept you here for just a little over an hour, but, uh, this is always the, this is always the toughest question of the whole session. You ready? It's going to be a doozy. I'm ready. It's a, uh, why does Ted Bright hunt? I love it. There's just no one that I think about it all year round. I think about it all the time. 
there is nothing in this world that compares to being in the woods in, and I really enjoy that late October and all of November timeframe, just being in the woods that time of year does something for my soul. I don't, it's like there's a Zen aspect to it. I feel like I am at my best. I feel like I am doing what I'm supposed to do. I guess you could say at that time of year in the woods. And there's just, there's just nothing like it. There's nothing that can replace that feeling. Yeah, no, I 100% agree with you, man. And, you know, that in itself, I think, is what separates a a lot of hunters, a lot of great hunters, Mm -hmm. because it's not about killing the big buck. That's, you know, of course, that's the objective when you're out there. But when you love the process, Mm -hmm. then the rewards typically will follow. Yeah, 100%, man. And that's one of the things that, like, just in life in general, man, it's like if you're doing something, whether it's your job or whether it's, you know, a hobby or a passion like hunting or whatever the case is, like if you don't like the work that it takes to get there to the success, like you're just not going to be good at it. You know what I mean? It's like I remember when I was in a band, like I loved rehearsal and I loved being in the recording studio and I loved that. Actually, my least favorite part of the whole thing was playing on stage. Like I was more of like a studio rat. I loved the creation process. I loved like the grind. That was my favorite part of it. And I had, you know, some, I had some success and it was, it was great. But the moment that I didn't, the moment that I wasn't, the moment I stopped enjoying the process, I knew I needed, I knew I needed to stop because I knew I wasn't going to get the the reward that I wanted at the end because I wasn't willing to put in the work and hunting's the same way. It's like, if you're not willing to put in the work, like the reward at the end is not going to probably be aligned with your expectations. Um, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Definitely. So, and you know, you can train yourself to love the process when yeah. it comes to, you know, professionally or, you know, mm-hmm. you know, job, whatever, you know, you can train yourself to love it, but there's two things in life that there is no training. There is no, uh, you know, forcefully, you know, trying to try and to stoke that fire or whatever. And archery hunting for me is, is that being in the woods that time of year is that for me, uh, it's just, it stokes my fire all year long and I can't wait to do it. Uh, it's just, it makes it, it's so exciting. Yeah, I know. I'm like already jacked up. I was talking to my buddy Chad and I was like, dude, I need to calm down. I was like, it's like the beginning of June and I'm like out of my mind right now. I was like, <laughs> I was like, I got a little, I got a little bit of a weight yet. You know, I was like, I need to slow, slow my roll. But, uh, man, I'm going to let you go, uh, get on with your evening. Uh, but before I do that, if you, uh, have anywhere you'd like to send people to find out more about you or they can follow along with your, uh, with your, with your season, let them know, uh, let them know now where they can find more about you. Yeah, I appreciate that. So on Facebook, I'm just Ted Bright, um, and I'm active on a lot of the forums and you know try to help as many other uh, inspiring hunters as possible. Instagram, I am Teddy Bright 21, and on YouTube, my YouTube channel name is Hunt Fit Ted. I try to bring um, you know my uh, my slice on anything outdoor adventure. I'd uh, even do a little bit of, you know, like a lot of wild game cooking and such. So, you know, I'm putting some effort into really trying to build that channel. So, yeah, if you would check out Hunt Fit Ted, like, share, and subscribe, I'd appreciate it. Awesome, man. Well, I appreciate you coming on, brother. I'll talk to you soon. Thanks, Clint. 
All right, folks, that is a wrap for today's show. I'd like to thank all of you for listening. And if you haven't yet, please head over to iTunes and leave us a five-star rating and be sure to subscribe to the podcast. And hell, while you're at it, head over to YouTube and give us a subscribe there as well. I'll be super appreciative if you do those couple things for me. And before I shut this thing down, I need to give a big shout out to our partners who continue to help us make this podcast possible. Tethered, Exodus Outdoor Gear, Skull Brew Coffee Company, and Gumleaf USA Boots. And until next time, we'll see y'all. All right, gang, the new Truth merch is in stock at truthfromthestand.com and on YouTube below any of the Truth From The Stand videos. I've got some new hats, beanies, t-shirts, long-sleeve t-shirts, and sweatshirts. There's even a new do-hard-shit hat for those of us who like to embrace micro-dosing adversity. So head to truthfromthestand.com and check out the new gear and use the code TRUTH, T-R-U-T-H, and save yourself some cash on the new gear.